0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, please be seated. So, quick um, side note: as you may notice, I am using a computer for my notes, which is not my normal practice. But a uh, our eight-month-old, 110-pound-plus puppy happened to figure out how to get out of the um, cage that we created, and while we were gone, thought it a good idea to pull the printer off of the shelving, and it was smashed everywhere, and so um, this is what it is. But, uh, so on to the sermon. Um, As I was preparing for this parable, I was... Kind of reminded and and thinking about how in in our life and in in our interactions, it seems like there's this weird interplay of a like love-hate relationship with grace, depending upon the circumstance that we're in. Might be shocking to some, but I uh, I was not a model high school student, nor junior high nor elementary school. Um, I did not get very good grades. Um, I got really good at knowing how to do the bare minimum so that I could pass. But I wasn't dumb. Um, One of the things that I had figured out in the uh, system was that whenever we would have... um, we would do we would do team projects or group projects and we'd have to team up with people and, and all my friends they would want to get together with 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 you know our crew of friends and, and and I knew that if I would do that that would be a bad idea or they would you know have some girl that they liked so then they try to to get on to her group but I, I was was smarter than them because the one thing I knew is that I would always look for the best students in the class and the smartest kids in the class and then those are the ones that I would try to be a part of their group and team because I knew that they would settle for nothing less than an A, even if I didn't do anything. And so I also got an A, even though I didn't deserve that A. And I get looks from my wife right now because she complains about kids like me all the time whenever she does group projects. But so in that, like I, I was, you know, I was, I was dovetailing off of the work of the others, and I greatly appreciated the fact that the grade was just divvied out equally to all. But then also, I think of times later in my life where. I would put in a ton of work. I would try to, 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 to accomplish something. I would lead something. And then whenever, you know, whenever the boss or whenever people would go to acknowledge what was happening, everybody else who was named and half the people didn't do anything. And then I wouldn't be acknowledged. And I would be angered. And I would be deflated. And I didn't like whenever things were divvied out that way in those situations. But as I said, it's interesting because we, we, we tend to appreciate grace whenever we're in a certain situation. But then in other situations, we tend to be infuriated by grace, even if we don't acknowledge it. <coughs> we want grace in certain moments and we want justice in others. It's a challenging reality that we live within. This is, I think it cuts through all of us in some way. And I think that this parable today speaks directly into the psychology that is behind this weird relationship with the idea of justice and grace. So I just want to look at this parable. I want to look at the cultural context so that we can get a better understanding of what is going on within this story And then look briefly at the textual context and what it reveals about who this is directed towards and then reflect on how this speaks to us here today. So first, understanding the story in its cultural context. What is going on here at first is actually very normative. It's pretty regular. You have a landowner who would have his hired employees, his regular employees that would be kind of the the servants that would always be working the land. But at certain times in the, the, the harvesting season, there would be an increasing need for laborers. And no, it's only certain periods. So, like around the harvest, you would need more workers, but you don't need all those workers all year round. And so, then during those times, the landowners would go and they would find day workers. And it was common practice in the first century that those who did not have steady work, that did not have a regular job, would go to a certain portion part of town. And it was a known part of town. And they would go and they would stand and they would wait, hoping that they would get hired as a day laborer. The practice is still common throughout the world and common in many major cities throughout the US today. And so you have a pretty normal, regular story going on and then it starts to get a little bit odd. Not at the beginning, the beginning we have this first group and the land owner goes and he hires them to help in the vineyard and and notes that it was early in the morning, likely around 6 a.m. probably right at daybreak. And it says that he establishes an oral contract with this first group, a denarius, for a day's work, which would have been the the going rate. Like that was decent pay for a day laborer. That's what would have been expected. It was fair pay. And then we hear that there are three more groups after that, Every three hours. So at 9 a.m., the landowner goes back to this same part of town. And then at 12 p.m. And then at 3 p.m. But what's interesting with this group is this group is a little bit different because if you notice, there's no oral contract. He doesn't tell them what he's going to pay. He says that I will pay what is right. The word that's translated what is right is the word dikaios in Greek. It's the word for righteous or just. And so these next group of workers, they accept the offer for work, trusting in the righteousness and justice of the landowner. And likely as the day wanes on, they're probably just happy to get anything out of their day. And then we have the last group. The landowner goes back, pretty much at the end of the workday, around 5 p.m., and he goes back to see who's left. And he finds a group that are still standing there, that have still yet to find work. If you notice with this group, there's no contract. There's actually no promise either. He just tells to them tells them come and work in my field and they come and as I was thinking about it you've got to wonder why these guys are still standing there who is going to go and hire somebody with about an hour's worth of daylight left and yet they're still standing there and the landowner the master pretty much asks as much why are you here But as you think about it, most likely these men are still standing there because they're just delaying the inevitable. Having to go home to hungry children to tell their wife that they failed again, that they couldn't get work and they couldn't provide anything for their family. So it probably at least felt better just to keep standing on that corner until it was dark. So they didn't have to go home and face their failure and face their children's hungering eyes as they looked up at them. There's two things I want to note before moving on to the payment, because the payment is where this really gets shocking, but there's actually a couple of shocking points already in the story that we may miss, that we might not pick up on. First of all is, why is the master going back every three hours? As a landowner, he should at least have his stuff in the row enough to know how much labor he would need for the day. He would go out and he would get those laborers, and then hire them for the day. It would be very odd that he would go hire a few and then get back and then be like, "Uh oh, there's more grapes. We need to." Like that's not what a farmer would do, not what a landowner would do. But then you also have to ask the question is, why was he the one going? Because we find out in verse 8 that he has a manager or a foreman. This was an individual who was hired by him and and hired to handle all the labor on his estate. The foreman would be the one who would handle the hiring. He would be the one that would go out and pick up the labor that they need. And yet you have the form the master who personally is going back and forth every three hours to the sketch part of town to pick up the laborers. I mean the thing is, is this scenario, like I said, would would have been commonplace. But what this landowner, what this master was doing, would have been very, very odd to anybody who was listening. And as I reflect on it and you think about it, I think the only logical explanation for this, and and I think we need to look into this, because when Jesus says something that is shocking and out of place, he intends to do so, because this is no longer a realistic story to his first century hearers. And I think that it's showing that what this landowner is doing, he's doing out of grace and compassion a concern for those who were not able to find work. He keeps going back to find those who've been passed over, those who've been forgotten, and bringing them in. That This action of the master had nothing to do with his labor needs and economics and everything to do with grace and compassion. And then as the story goes on, we have that foreman who's brought into the scene so that then the payments can be dispensed and if you noticed you wouldn't unless you're reading the Greek there's something that changes at this point he goes from being called the master of the house in our translation it says he's the owner of the vineyard in the Greek it says that he's the kurios of the vineyard kurios is the word lord it's the term that is given to Christ he's the lord of the vineyard If you read the Old Testament throughout the prophets, there's a continual imagery of God as the Lord of the vineyard, and the vineyard being the people of God. And so we have the Lord of the vineyard, and he decides that he's going to pay everyone equal, regardless of how long they worked. I mean, you had some that worked 12 hours, some that worked 9 hours, some that worked 6 hours, some that worked 3 hours. And some that only worked an hour, but they all got the exact same pay. And as you look at this and put yourself in this situation, you can understand why that first group that worked 12 hours is angry. And probably the anger increased more and more as you got back. I mean, the group that worked three hours, if they got the same pay, be like, hey, that's Grace. And they just get worse and worse until you got to that group. It worked 12 hours. And the anger of the first group, as like I said, is understandable. But I think also, the anger of the first group was actually in- intentionally elicited by the Lord of the vineyard. If you notice, he was very precise in his command to the foreman. Make sure you pay the last first. All of this would have been easily avoided if he would have paid the first first. Because if he paid the first first, they would have received exactly what they contracted to get. They would have been happy to get a day's work and a day's pay, taken their denarius, walked out the door, went back home, and been happy about what happened. But no, because he decided to pay the last first, the first had to sit and watch. And build up with greater and greater anger. And see, what we find within the story is that they weren't angry because of what they received. They received exactly what was promised to them, a good, honest pay for a day's work. But instead, they were angry because of the grace that was shown to others. They're angry because those who they viewed as less deserving were made to become equals with them. So we see that with this first group, they have a growing anger, probably in their mind thinking that they are being right in their anger because of injustice problem is, is there's no injustice. The, uh, the Lord of the Vineyard did exactly what Leviticus and Deuteronomy commands him to, which is to pay an honest wage for an honest day's work. They were angry because in their work they began to gain a sense of entitlement. So much so that it says that they not only felt entitled to the denarius that they got, they felt entitled to tell the master what he could do with the money that was his. They're angry about God's lavish grace. You see, this parable, it's a parable that Jesus says, it's it's a parable that highlights the nature of the kingdom, which is a reality of God's lavish and unwarranted grace. And this grace is good news. That's what gospel means. It's good news of God's, God's favor that he shows and dispenses loosely. But this good news can easily become bad news. It can become infuriating news. When a sense of entitlement creeps in. When we begin to think that the grace we received entitles us to then dictate how the grace is dispensed towards others. In the face of justice, we cry out for grace knowing what justice would do to us then we often can fall into the place of receiving grace, and then when we look at others receiving the same grace, we call out for justice. So then who is this parable directed towards? Flipping our understanding of the kingdom of God and justice and grace and prying into the depravity of our fallen hearts See, what's unique about this parable is it's different than a lot of the other parables because most of the parables are directed to Pharisees or Sadducees or to the religious leaders. But this parable was directed to the apostles. This is a continuation of the previous discussion that Jesus had with the apostles following his encounter with the rich young ruler. If you know that story, is a man who, who kept all the law. but wanted to know what he, else he needed to do to get into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus told him that he needed to sell everything and give it to the poor. And the rich man was unwilling to do that. He left sad. And then Jesus says this hard statement that for a rich man, he, essentially saying that, that for a rich man, it is impossible to enter into the kingdom. The apostles say, but then who can be saved? And then after Jesus explains some of those things, Peter responds to Jesus and says, See, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Reminding Jesus, see, we're better than that rich man. He wasn't willing to give up everything. Look what all we gave up, but how are we going to be compensated for that? And Jesus responds by stating that they will receive far more than what they have given up. They will not receive justice. They will receive grace. But then he warns them and says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And after making that statement he proceeds to tell them this parable. It's a warning to the apostles, those who were first called by Christ. A warning to those who served him from the beginning. And if you know the story of all the apostles, they all gave everything and ended up dying a horrible death. Except for St. John being dipped in boiling oil and thrown onto an island of isolation is still not a great thing. It's a warning to them that as this gospel spreads and moves and those others are brought in, that they don't allow to creep in what crept in to those first who were hired. A sense of entitlement in greater position. Because like all of us, the apostles were just men. And like all of us, they also had the natural tendency to love grace in its conceptual form or when they received it, but then turned to the law of reward and punishment based upon performance when when they had to face the scope of God's grace. And we see that right after this, it already starts happening. Because if you continue reading on, you have Jesus foretelling his death, and then a fight breaks out amongst the apostles over who is going to be greatest in the kingdom. Who will have the higher reward? And as a warning to the apostles, as the fruit of the apostles' ministry, as Christ's Church, it's a warning to us. It confronts our natural tendency towards celebrating grace personally and theoretically and then abhorring it when realizing the full scope of God's grace. We so often usually start as the last group, celebrating that we've been chosen and brought in by grace and then so quickly become like the first group. And so the question that this parable poses upon our heart is do we just intellectually acknowledge grace and rely on it when we are cognizant of our need for it, or do we celebrate grace whenever, wherever, and however it happens? And I think this also points and brings out an issue of how we even understand Christian obedience. It's an obligation that must be motivated by some greater standing or greater reward. I think far too often we miss the very nature and blessing of, that it is to be a servant of the Lord. And so when, and when we do that, we create this weird structure This new kind of law of reward and punishment, with grace sprinkled in, and we have this misconception that somehow, you know, if however however many souls you win are going to be a notch, and then you're going to have another room on your mansion in heaven, and then you're going to get like, and it's all this great reward system based upon your performance to keep you motivated to serve, but then it misses the very nature of what it means to be called off that street corner and employed by the Creator of heaven and earth. Is serving the Lord actually an opportunity of being restored to God and living in a kingdom manner now? Living in light of what will be here and now. In communion with our God. Experiencing the taste and the fruit of the reversal of the fall. See, the thing is, is whether in God's grace, you've been following the Lord and seeking to be obedient from the moment of birth, or only minutes before execution while waiting on death row, you receive the call of the Lord and are welcomed in by grace, the final Reward is the same because the reward is all grace. But there is something that we should remember. Instead of being bitter thinking, look at all that I did. I devoted so much and then this person sneaks in at the end. We should be instead realizing that the ones who have been called earlier have an additional blessing of not spending the majority of their life standing on a street corner, filled with anxiety, no security, feeling passed over and rejected, hoping for something but not even knowing what it is that they're hoping for. See, those who were called first were liberated from that anxiety And that crushing weight of not knowing. And they were provided security and brought in. So I wanted to just say for our new little church, as we're just forming, is that first and foremost, however long the Lord may have for us to continue And we'll continue to preach, to teach, to lift up, and to celebrate the gospel of grace. Unashamedly and continually. But here's the thing, is no matter how much grace is highlighted, no matter how high of a place that we put the gospel within our systematic theology, this parable forces the question, is will we be a people that truly love and celebrate God's grace and compassion wherever it might appear? In the church, where we love grace so much that we can celebrate and rejoice and marvel whenever that jerk that we can't stand gets up and walks and is still received at the Lord's table. The one that I would look at and say, if that was my table, you would not be welcome. And yet celebrate that God's grace is that that immense, and Not just seeing grace in the sense of salvation, but celebrating the manifestations of God's grace and favor in the small ways that is all around us and we often don't see it. When we see God's wrath withheld upon those who deserve it, when we see favor being shown upon those who are our colleagues, when we see manifestations of God's blessing and love to those who we may oppose, those who may oppose us, those who are even our enemies. Not that we necessarily even celebrate them, but we are so enamored by the grace of God that wherever it might appear, we turn and rejoice. As I think about the church, I'm reminded of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his book, Life Together. I can't remember the exact quote, but essentially what he argues is, is quite beautiful and challenging. He's talking about how messed up the church is. And in his time, he's dealing with the fact that the majority of the church in Germany had aligned themselves with the Nazis. And yet he says... If the gospel is true, we should not be surprised that the church is as messed up as it is. Because God's grace will always welcome in those who will mess things up. It's not that we celebrate the brokenness in the church. We should weep over it. And seek as a little manifestation to be as faithful as possible. But nonetheless, be so enamored with grace that whenever things get awkward or weird. And whenever you have a weird relationship things or something ends up messed up. Is we can stand there and look around and say, I can't believe how messed up some of these people are. Man is our God gracious. Because he welcomes them in. That even in the brokenness of the church, we can marvel that God's grace is so grand that he would even show favor to those types of people. See, the thing is, is when we are blessed to have a disposition of true delight in God's grace, it is truly liberating. Because then, even in the midst of the darkness, we see manifestations of God's beautiful, radiant grace acting all around us. And it's a disposition that is cultivated as we continually are reminded of and reflect upon the grace that you and I have received. Being reminded that we were called off that street corner, that we were given dignity, security, and a meaningful job it's interesting. As Christians, we're called servants of Christ. But as servants of Christ, we're not day laborers. Instead, children and heirs with Christ. And we are given a position that is eternally secure because our position and reward does not depend on our labor, performance, or sacrifice. But instead, God's lavish grace provided through Christ's sacrifice. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. And mercy, my God, is the theme of my song The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue